anti-racist and placing that on individual exertion in no way addresses the fact that we have wider issues. We have wider societal problems where racism is not just isolated to the daily encounter, but it happens across, you know, it hospitals and workforces in terms of housing spaces. It happens so insidiously across so many levels of society. And this is where the conversation should be focused on. But as we've been seeing it, it is an individual that recounts what they have experienced on a personal level. We're stuck in a conversation across the Nordic region where we talk about anti-black racism as something that almost discussed from a moral positioning, but we're not addressing the fact that there is a wider history and there is a wider social frame intact that explains why these things are happening. And these things are happening because we have constitutional efforts and we have legislative measures and political rhetorics that form to sort of drive these issues. Spaces that are completely segregated and racialized. What it is like to be you know, queer and Arab and how difficult that might be, or how do you negotiate that? The destruction of the social cultural worlds of black people, of African people, those who were here before. Which kinds of bodies get disciplined and regulated through discourse, but also in actual practice? Hi, I'm Magrida Waku. I'm Caroline Honorian. And I'm Leopold Lambert. This is the Phenomenalist podcast, operating in parallel with the Phenomenalist magazine that engages with the politics of space and bodies. Our hope is to provide a useful platform where activists, academics and practitioners build solidarities across geographical scales. Each episode, we invite someone we admire and learn from their experiences, research and struggle. So, hello everyone, and welcome to the Funambles podcast. My name is Magrida Waku, and today I'm very happy to welcome Awa Konate for a conversation about anti-blackness in the Nordics. Awa, so firstly, thank you so much for bringing this crucial topic on the table and for accepting my invitation to discuss this further. A topic that for many reasons have been paid very little attention to, whether they relate to the cultural and political languages and iconographies that have been associated with the abstract idea of the Nordicness, or the lack of a sufficient language to actually address racialized violence across Scandinavia, or what we'll indeed go more into details with throughout this conversation, this very questionable idea of the Nordic countries being an exceptional example when we revisit the European colonial past. But before we'll dive into the specificities of today's conversation, could you please start by introducing yourself? Yeah, um, well, to begin with, thank you so much for having me here today. Um, as you're saying yourself, it's a pleasure as someone who is um, of, who, a Nordic person of African descent to have a conversation that is very much um, obliterated and overseen and actually quite rendered invisible in many discourses, although it should be much more crucial to have. Um, so yeah, my name is Al Konate. I am Danish Ivorian by background, born in Ivory Coast, but raised in Copenhagen. 
Um, I am a culture worker in the form of an art critic slash writer and creator and programmer. And I'm also the founder of the interdisciplinary research platform, um, Cultural Art and Society, abbreviated CAS, which is a platform that um, researches the culture economy of African archives, both continentally and within the diaspora, but also advocates for African cultural activism and for black African generally black arts education to be more more widely accessible to black working class people. Great. Thank you very much for this. So I will start arguing that today's conversation feeds into the massive ongoing activism currently taking place in various geographies across the world. And uh, in a very crucial moment of the global black uprising, it is in many ways timely, if not even urgent, to attempt to articulate a critique of the many different ways in which racism has been and still is normalized across the Nordics. Whether it spans from the everyday encounters on a micro level and the experiences faced by black individuals across the Scandinavian region, to the even more profound examples of institutionalized acts of violence that basically perpetrate different societal spheres and spaces. Whether we're talking about the media and political landscape, the public debates, or even within cultural production. But from where I'm standing, I myself cannot speak across the Nordics, but solely, mainly from the Danish context in which I, as an Angolan-born black woman, partly grew up in and still from part of today. And from this very perspective, the way I see it is that the violence against Afro-Danes historically has been an important part of the cultural production in this country, which somehow reflects back to the great level of structural silence and even the inability to address issues relating to racism in Denmark. This being said, I'd like to start asking you whether we can even make an argument across the Nordics, which in this case I will refer to being Denmark, Sweden, Norway, and Finland. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I would argue. Um, I would argue that on, and I would draw this argument on two different things. One is the uh, the entirety and the idea of Nordicness that very much is somewhat of a cohesive social political discourse that binds all these countries together. And the other one is also the historical context by which there is a relation to empire across the Nordic region. There is a relation to slavery and there is a relation to colonialism. Now, specifically with Denmark and Sweden's case, I mean, both Denmark and Sweden have had colonies and Norway in the extension and the form that it used to be a combined um, kingdom with Denmark um, when it was when it was still the two countries were still one. Now, Sweden, I believe, has had colonies in Trinidad, actually, um, in the U.S., have had trade slave trading forts across Africa, as has Denmark as well. And I mean, Denmark it used to be the seventh largest slave trading nation trader of enslaved Africans taking from forts around the western coast of Africa and then off to the Danish West Indies island and I mean Denmark has Denmark sorry the West Indies island have been under Danish colonial rule since up I believe up till from 1733 when the first Danish colonialist traders arrived up until 1916 when the islands were sold off to the US and then were renamed as the US Virgin Islands. So there is very much a historical frame 
there in, t in place that informs our current contemporary understandings of why anti-blackness is so rampant across the Nordic region. And now going back to Norway, I mean, Norway is one of those European countries that had the highest number of missionaries sent off to Africa as part of the colonial project. Finland is a bit more difficult to discuss, as I believe Milka Naroja, researcher Milka Naroja also drew on in the conversation that we had two weeks ago in CAS's talk. There is there is a complex history with Finland because the because the country itself, compared to the rest of 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 the Nordic region, has a quite long standing history of occupation and colonialism via Russian and um, Russian occupation of the country. But with that being said, both I mean looking beyond looking beyond the context of 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 occupation, slavery, and violence against Black people. There is also a history across the Nordics of racism and violence against indigenous communities. And I'm thinking about Greenland, for example, and Greenland's long-standing colonial history to Denmark and the treatment of indigenous communities, Samis, in Norway and in, in Sweden as well. So there is, I think, you know, despite despite the, the, the tiresome efforts that have been made by both historical narratives across the Nordic region, both political discourses across the Nordic region, there is very much a violent history in place that clarifies and also cements that violent compounds and foregrounds the history of the Nordic region. And how how would you say that this colonial legacy and this idea of the Nordicness translates into contemporary society? How does this inform the anti-blackness or structural violence against black and brown bodies? I mean, there is it. It informs it in in the sense that historic. As said again, going back to the history, there is already a history. There's already a history by which black and brown people within the Nordic context, in juxtaposition to whiteness, are rendered non-human. And this is me just drawing on Sylvia Winter when she says, you know, she draws these parallels between what is human, and how hum the humanism and humanity and what it means to be human emerges in the context of white enlightenment that's very much rooted in patriarchal ideas of whiteness to begin with and how that sort of juxtaposed and positions black people and brown people at sites of violence and then those sites of violence are then in some way needed to be regulated treated in 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 comparison or by modeling after a white europeanness this is something that Sylvia Winter said, and this is also something that Denise Ferrer da Silva says, the, Afro, um, the Brazilian scholar, when she discusses the analytics of raciality. She clarifies here, and I'm drawing on a really good um, definition that was written recently on critical legal thinking by Carson co-author, where, where she, he clarifies that Denise's an analytics of raciality draws on that black people and people of color are generally viewed as pathological threats. And those pathological threats are to the ideas of order and they are to ideas of civility. And these ideas are always in juxtaposition to white Europeanness. Now, that seems to unfold itself across the Nordic region via legislative measures and political discourses and rhetorics. So it is in Denmark, for example, where you have the ghetto law that we're going to, I guess, I'm assuming draw on much deeper in our in, in the coming minutes of, the, of our conversation but where there is a lot that's been put in place that targets specifically areas of the country where black and brown people are a, min a majority. There's already a racial context of these laws. We're talking about how racial, sorry, how political and public discourses, for example, in the media are going to have incredibly racist, politicians have incredibly racist opinions about 
a specific part of their civil society that is not white. And that is normalized and almost accepted under the guise of a libertarian discourse that says everything can be discussed and everything should be discussed. There's a way there are ways in which politics across the Nordic region really normalizes racism by inviting it into the institutional perimeters that are then compounded again into legislative measures and then therefore not questions because they seem to be unfolding and they seem to be made legitimate. Do we see similar examples uh, in Sweden, Norway and Finland, for instance? Because in Denmark we have very concrete cases and as you're pointing out, there is, for instance, this so-called ghetto policy and many other cases. Do we have similar examples that we can sort of draw upon in the rest of the Nordics? I mean, absolutely. I mean, in Sweden, there have been many instances and even reports been made about housing discrimination that is faced by black people in the country. Similarly, in Norway, when we hear stories about both medical racism, for example, I actually think quite very, very recently, there was a report released by a medical student in a Norwegian magazine in which this student detailed that It is normal across medical schools in Norway, for example, for medical students to be informed that they should be extra vigilant of black patients coming in because they exaggerate their pains and it's part of their culture. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, these are similar things, but I'm saying this is it, it's to really understand the context of which this ra- this racism sort of extends itself to various institutional bodies and various spaces and discourses and therefore is so normalized and not questioned. So in Denmark, you have the ghetto law. I'm not sure specifically about laws across Norway and laws across Sweden and Finland. But I know that if we're going to think about law, then perhaps we don't need to necessarily think about what is framed within the legislation, but rather what is what becomes legitimate and what becomes legal and allowed to actually say. And that is the racist discourse. This is this is already a frame by which the law is this is already a frame by which the law models itself after. Great. Thank you very much for this. I believe that you already answered some of my next questions, which is, again, going back to this recent panel on anti-blackness that you chaired a week ago. For me, one of the most crucial statements that were brought forward in the discussion was that of which that the violence actually starts in the discourse. And I think, I think this is also an important thing to address. Again, it is such a rooted layer. The cultural production is one layer of it, of course. The media the media is yet another layer that doesn't even have a sufficient language or doesn't even know how to address racialized issues and constantly seems to apply a strategy of denial, denying the fact that these uh, issues even exist. I'm, I'm just going to draw on what you're saying about media complicity. One of the difficulties about you know, having a wider, because I mean, conversations about anti-black racism across the Nordic region, they do exist. And they exist, as said again, often on periphery, they exist in smaller spaces, because there is so much resistance from mainstream spaces and mainstream institutions to integrate these conversations into their wider dialogue and wider discourses, because they're not prioritized, or because they're not deemed to be relevant or sufficient or adequate at all. And that problem is also because i mean i'm I think a lot about this and i'm and I'm very very careful about I'm very careful when I say that they don't know how to deal with it because I mean the thing is with conversations about anti blackness across across the Nordic region and media complicity 
it is, you know, there, there are two spectrums of the conversation. Either one is that there is, um, either one is that there is an absolute refusal of, of the existence of these, not even just existence. There's an absolute refusal to even consider that this is a problem across the, across this part of, of Europe. Or it is that, you know, speakers are given a platform to talk about anti-black racism, but that conversation is then so deduced to, and so deduced and almost separated and disjuncted from what really is the foundation to it, which is, it is a wider structural problem. And instead we're giving almost, um, and you know, we've, as both, both being, you know, Afro-Nordics, we've seen this across our region, Individuals are given a platform, they get to talk about the racism that they experience and what has happened. And what we encounter often, it seems almost as if it's, it is a national testimony, like a national narrative. You know, an individual gets to explain, I've experienced this form of racism and this has happened to me. And then we get to, we have them recounting their trauma again, again, and again, because white wider society needs to engage with this violence that is enacted on another body but yet get to observe it from a distance enough that has not addressed them personally and it's so reduced to the to things that are done by the individual rather than us having a wider conversation about the fact that we have institutional and structural mechanism in place that not only legitimize but uphold and exert the individual's racism. I mean, don't get me wrong. I think it is important that we we hold a space and we open up a space for individuals to, to recount, not recount, but to sort of express the racism that they've encountered and the various ways in which it, it manifests so violently across the Nordic region. But my concern is just that because there is generally so much of a resistant crop media across the Nordic region, what we're seeing is that the, the very few moments in which that, I guess, a platform perhaps is given to talk and address racism within each country, they happen, they seem to be remodeled in such a an incredibly individual narrative that places so much responsibility on what one person does, i.e. the entire framing about, you know, this is what you can do to be a better ally and this is what you can do to be anti-racist. Being anti-racist and placing that on individual exertion in no way addresses the fact that we have wider issues. We have wider societal problems where racism is not just isolated to the daily encounter, but it is uh, it, it happens across, you know, be it hospitals, be it in workforces, be it in terms of housing spaces. It happens so insidiously across so many levels of society. And this is where the conversation should be focused on. But as we've been seeing it, it is an individual that recounts what they have experienced on a personal level. And of course, the personal and the impersonal are not inseparable at all. But it's just to say that we are sort of stuck in a, we're stuck in a conversation across the Nordic region where we talk about anti-black racism as something that, you know, something that should be empathized with and something that is, is, it's almost discussed from a moral positioning of, of an ethic, of an ethics. You know, this is wrong because you should be seeing me as a human because I'm just like you. But we're not addressing the fact that there is a wider history and there is a wider social frame intact that explains why these things are happening. And these things are happening because we have constitutional efforts and we have legislative measures and political rhetorics that form to sort of drive these issues. And this is where I think is is crucial for us to dive to direct our attention towards to, you know, of course, I mean, and also again, the conversations that we've been having 
are also very much with the idea of which whiteness itself gets to determine the direction of the discussions across the media. You know, most of the public figures that we've seen that are having these conversations are white journalists with larger platforms. And I, I would love to be proved wrong, but I'm not at the moment because I'm seeing how the engagement with these conversations are so incredibly surface leveled and so compounded and so focused on trying to drive an individual anti-racist efforts to address what is a wider societal mechanism and problem. I definitely do agree on that. And uh, you already touched around some of the, the next things that I would like to bring to the table. So if we stay within the Danish context, and as we discussed earlier, we have sort of witnessed significant events and cases in recent years that somehow have been given room to the forms of tremendous activism that we today see in Denmark, with the emergence of different networks and organizations against structural racism and racialized policies and so on and so forth. It is very unique in the Danish context, I would say. And just to mention a few of these cases, there is, of course, the so-called ghetto policy from 2018 that we discussed earlier. We can go much more into details about this specific case, as it really deserves much attention. But I will instead refer to the to one of the uh, our previous podcast episodes that is designated to the discussions about this, where I one, one year ago met with the two co-founders of the resistance movement called Almin Molstand that was co- uh, founded to counteract this specific policy. But one thing that makes it very, very problematic and which I want to touch briefly upon is that in its pure form, it is a policy of spatial segregation, of double punishments and a parallel justice system that is constructed to target minority groups living in a specific neighborhoods across the country. In other words, as I will put it, it's basically a spatialization of racism that is based on statistics above all and a dehumanization of human beings. So this is one thing. And another thing is, of course, all the everyday ongoing racial profiling in public debates and in the media. And most recently, in June this year, a young Afrodane was brutally murdered a traumatic event, which the public basically failed to give the attention it deserved, and the media was completely silent for days, or what felt like weeks. And adding to this, only three days after the investigation of the murder began, the lead attorney denied all racial implications, even though evidences pointed directly to a racial motive. And again, This structural way of silencing racial issues becomes even more clear with the specific case. But yet again, you know much more about this since you were actually the one writing a pitch to the New York Times a few days ago. But I would like to take some time to further discuss the particularities of of some of these cases and the way they somehow have seen to increase the volume of discussions about racism in Denmark. I mean, yeah, they certainly have. So, um, I mean, with the recent murder of the um, Afro-Danish man on the island of Bornholm, that, for me, 
you know, I mean, just speak speaking case based on case based specificity here in Denmark, there have been, I believe, there have been previous incidents either that have resulted in in absolute violence in the instance of death or in in quite traumatic violence. And I believe in two thousand and something, a fifteen year old Turkish boy was actually also killed and was called the p word before he was killed. And even when the police decided to investigate the case, they also dismissed that it was racially motivated, despite the boy actually experiencing racist abuse. Now, going back to the most recent one, you know, I was just so I was so dumbfounded and just so flabbergasted by the extent to which Danish media news houses seem to have zero interest in trying to investigate the extent of the case at all. It was strange for me that a state prosecutor who's been assigned to a case with alongside the poli- the local police force or as you're saying only after three days of the body being found and the two perpetrators being arrested can then come out and make official statements and say that it is not racially motivated they've been giving an entire month to actually research to investigate the case and even as they even if they're making the statement only three days after it is made within the full awareness both to the public and themselves, that there are so many things that point towards it being racially motivated. I.e., one of the brothers, you know, has a tattoo that says white power on it with swastika symbols. The other one has is an open supporter of a far-right fascist party in Denmark. Stramkurs. Stramkurs for me is a far-right fascist party, Rasmus Paludan, in, 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 as a leader. Absolutely. There's no denying that. So, you know, these these two things are in place and we know from account now from two other anonymous sources from a Zetland article that there is indeed a lot of racism that's been, you know, that's been that's been perpetrated by the two brothers. And it, it's so shocking to me that when a New York Times article that I sort of tried to pitch to the New York Times came out, Danish journalists were on Twitter and on various other social media platforms far more concerned with trying to discredit the article's angle, which is pointing to the fact that there is a racial context that should be cemented and should be given key attention. Instead, they were so much more driven by trying to discredit the article on ridiculous grounds. So this is going back again when I say that there is so much of a complicity, not just in Denmark, actually, but this is generally across the Nordic region, where people that have larger cultural platforms, especially in wider mainstream public media, they do not have an interest in trying to engage with the extent of which anti-black violence and racism is so rampant across the Nordic region. And I believe... That's not because they don't know how to handle with it, because they're journalists, it's part of their job. But I also think that this is just a, it's 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 a wider context of this idea of Nordic exceptionalism and the Nordic paradigm. You know, we were, so, you know, Denmark, for example, was the first country historically, supposedly, to ban slavery, for example, which is not true. The Haiti, Haiti was the first nation to ban slavery through its revolution. But, you know, there is a widely understood and, and 
widely understood and believed and very, very held, dearly held idea that that the Nordic region is somewhat free and absorbed from all the colonial violences that we've seen other European nations exert across the global south. And this is also cemented in the idea that the Nordic regions have really good social welfare systems, for example, you know, i.e. the argument and the paradigm that we see so much across the transatlantic in the US where they say, you know, we need to look to the Nordic model without any careful consideration being given to um, the fact that the Nordic welfare system or Nordic welfare model is very intertwined with resource extraction and ecological impacts across the global south. Um, it means having to also address and think more deeply about the many silent traces of colonialism and the empire um, across the Nordic region that persist through the imagery of household goods that are then so liberally restaged and rendered as either art or design motifs. I'm thinking specifically here about um, Osega Hansen's Kaffir Pien and Tobak's Pien. You know, both are today only thought of as racial iconography, but rarely as preserved markings of how black and brown people are still sites of commodity and violence in Denmark. It also means, for example, having to to open up and address the material heritage and archives that are still held within various um, institutions across the Nordic region and reveal a larger and fuller extent of of um, Nordic colonial complicity and Nordic colonial extraction. There is so much that cements this idea of Nordic exceptionalism and therefore it remains so deeply invested in trying to maintain maintain this idea and this identity that it is somewhat pristine and different from the rest of the world, different from the rest of Europe. Having an open, a widely open conversations about conversations about anti-black racism across the Nordic region means that we are threatening the idea of Nordic exceptionalism. It means that we're completely obliterating the foundations of Nordic exceptionalism as one that is white supremacist, for example historically and currently in terms of how it is framed legally and two we're we're you know we're we're attacking the idea that we're attacking the idea that nordic nordic people are not as tolerant as they have believed and convinced themselves that they are and it also means opening up far more extensive debates, i.e. the question of reparations, for example, in Denmark, in relation to its former colony in, uh, of the U.S. West in, um, of the U.S. Virgin Islands. So there is so much that I'm, that is so much that I'm personally convinced is at stake if such a wider conversation were to be opened. And, and this is why you see not only politicians or individuals, but you see wider public society structures and institutions being very, very invested in trying to maintain this fallacy that we are exempt from having done this as the rest of the world has. This was great, Awa. Thank you so much. And again, um, I think, or I think it's crucial to to reflect reflect it back to this colonial legacy and this colonial past because this really do inform present day logics. And of course, you were talking about these discussions that are taking place across the Nordic region, and especially thinking about these different actions and these different forms of solidarity that have started emerging with many different organizations taking forms and so on and so forth. But what do you think? will take for these singular actions as I see them being today and all these discussions to transform into some sort of long-term strategies or or even something that is not only there here now but 
something that eventually will continue to exist and start to basically challenge or inform the status quo and structural policies. Um, one one key crucial point of departure I would believe is to is to continue and exist on trying to have a I think perhaps constructing an idea of blackness from a point in which that the U.S. is not an eminent departure. This is key. I mean, you know, because of I mean, there is I mean, yes, because of a fairly recent I mean, this form of activism you know, across the Nordic region is fairly recent for us compared to, say, the UK, for example, compared to France or the US. So a lot of the language that we use, for example, that is also derived from other countries, right? A lot of the discourses that we use are derived from other countries, and a lot of our analysis are also derived from other countries. But we also have to understand that there are particularities for us that we really have to foreground our discourses in, i.e., for example, in Denmark, it is imperative for Black people and people of African descent generally to build solidarity movements with indigenous activists, for example, in Greenland. Greenland has a long history of Danish colonialism. Greenland has a long history of incredibly violent occupation from the Danish government and Danish politicians. And, you know, as we're speaking right now, there are activists that are currently campaigning against what they believe is Danish occupation of the island and their denial of their autonomy. So that's, for example, one. And I and personally, for me, it is so imperative that we across the Nordic region also understand that there are indigenous communities and other minority groups that have been in across this region for, say, longer than African migrants came came to, to, to Denmark, Sweden, Norway, and Finland starting in the 70s and the 60s that have a history of having really experienced what the state-sanctioned violence that Africans today are experiencing. That's one thing. The second is to have nuance in our conversations on our debates about anti-Black racism. One, the current debates that we're seeing at the moment are incredibly, are incredibly able-bodied. There's no form of, there's no space given to the anti-Black racism that is faced by people with disabilities, for example. That's one. The other is there is no space that is, well, I mean, there is space, sorry, I would say. On the periphery where the conversations are much more radical and critical, there is certainly a space. But in terms of our mainstream conversations, there isn't, for example, a conversation about how um, anti-Black racism and the violence system that, that one experiences is also very much shaped from a pers- perspective of citizenship. What is experienced by the citizen and the non-citizens, although similar, are of course different, because people who are, for example, asylum seekers, who are refugees, who are homeless people, and as we see them in Denmark, specifically with African migrants that are bottle collectors, many of them do not have access to, to some of the benefits that their citizenship grants. So that also means that they're on the periphery of society where the racism that that I may experience is much more severe for them, precisely because there are no form of constitutional or legislative foundations by which they feel protected in any sense at all. So this is a conversation we need. It's so imperative to have a conversation that also that accounts for citizenship, 
because people that are invited onto platforms to talk about anti-black racism are usually people who speak Danish really well, or usually people who have gone through the Danish educational system, or usually people who are able to fit a particular model or particular value of citizenship and what it means to be a good citizenship or citizen, sorry. I.e. when we hear our conversations, it's so often that, you know, we need to be better at accepting diversity in our societies because people come and contribute, you know, they add to our society. There's such a danger to this, there's such a danger to this framing of value in terms of contributing because one, it reiterates against this whole idea of coloniality and this whole idea of production, of capitalist production, right? You are here and you are worthy of being present and you're worthy of participating and being included because you add something, not merely because you are a person and that is really where it goes. And this is also, it is on these grounds that you see how anti-black violence, across, anti-black racism, sorry, across the Nordic region it, it, it unfolds differently according on which society lay and who it is that we're talking about. And a gender perspective. I mean, my God, black women activists across the Nordic region, they experience an awful lot of abuse. An awful lot of abuse. And this is everything from from abuse in terms of the angry black woman stereotypes is everything from incredibly colorist stereotype it is everything from incredibly incredibly classist remarks for example um so yeah there's there there is a need for a nuance in our conversations i believe also giving very careful consideration and urgency to the language that we employ to talk about anti-black racism across this region of europe whether it is currently as we're seeing it happening now or in terms of the discourse that we're trying to build for a long-term perspective and future and i'm i'm giving urgency and consideration to the language that we talk about because i believe it will allow us to also be able to to formate our own our own lingual discussion about anti-black racism definitely definitely no i um, i really think this is so crucial and and i mean for me now what i'm basically gazing at is to see the results from these fruits from all these ongoing discussions and actions that are that we are having right now. Also to see what kinds of different imaginaries and what kinds of long-term solidarities across the region that will emerge from all of this. And I think we already came came up from a very good start with what's going on from the panel on the same thematics a week ago and uh, that, that, that you chaired, for instance, and so forth. And, uh, and there are many different kinds of organizations today. So so I would say, say I'm, I'm positive but I'm, but also a bit, um, but also a bit hesitating. Yes, I know that there's still a long way to go. Absolutely, there's a long way to go, and there is such a long way to go because I said again, this form of activism is fairly recent for us, at least on the wider spectrum that we're seeing it now. But yeah. we have an advantage in the sense that you know so much of our language and so much of our of our discourses are or taken from outside or taken from somewhere else by incredible black critical thought that's been produced in the UK, that's been produced in the US and so on and so forth. And you know, we have seen what that discord has been able to do and what that discourse has not been able to do. Currently, as we're speaking, a lot of the anti-black racism slash anti, you know, anti, anti-racist discourses, public discourses, at least that we're seeing, is one that is really driving towards inclusion and diversity paradigms. 
Um, personally, for me, I am I am personally very much against this idea of diversity and inclusion paradigms because. I mean, diversity and inclusion paradigm has given us Matthias Hesfaya in Denmark, for example, the first black foreign minister <laughs> who is, who is, yeah, what is doing? <laughs> exactly. I mean, exactly. So I think, wow. I think I, it would be great for me for us to be able to perhaps even think about what does abolition look like across the Nordic region? What does it look like if we are able to imagine ourselves and our positioning and our communities outside of an existing structures that are so deeply embedded in these issues that simply having black people included in them is not going to you know in any way alternate what is already an existing problem this is so imperative for us to think about because in the uk for example where i live you know diversity there are black people represented within you know specific industries there are black people represented within specific specific positions, key positions, but that has done very little for the conditions of black people, especially black working class people in this country. So I'm 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 very curious about you no, know, I'm not, not necessarily curious, but I'm very I'm very attentive and careful about what it is that we are aspiring for by trying to have a conversation on anti black racism. You know, can we imagine ourselves outside of our inclusion in these structures? Can we imagine ourselves outside of inclusion in these spaces? And this is imperative, I believe, because we've seen what has gone wrong in the US and the UK. Being included and being diversified and being represented is simply not enough. It really isn't. And again, that takes me back to also ideas of electoral politics, where I personally do not believe that that the change in these at the addressing of anti-black racism that we want to see it's going to happen by us voting i.e. specific politicians in in the uk and the us we are far more aware and we thought we acknowledge very much that there is there is a difficulties in trying to reform existing systems because of their history and because of their roots in in racialized ideas and in racialized epistemologies and ontologies and this is an analysis we should also be applying to the nordic region the Nordic, the idea of Nordicness itself is one that is deeply invested in the maintaining of whiteness. This was great, Awa. And uh, on these concluding notes, I would like to once again thank you so, so very much for sharing these critical thoughts, these insights and these perspectives into this important discussion. Thank you so much for having me today. And yeah, I'm, I'm, there's, there is an urgency for these conversations. There really is. This podcast is produced by The Phenomenalist. You can listen to dozens of other episodes on your favorite podcast platforms and on our website at thephenomenalist.net.